Hey guys, Jules here. So before today's show, I just wanted to give you a quick update on a couple of very tangible ways that you can support this show, especially if you are a regular listener and you enjoy the work that we put out. By the way, when I say we, I mean just me and my husband. (laughs) My husband serves as my greatest support system and helps me kind of work through some of the storylines and then everything else is me. I do all the editing and the script writing and interviews and such. So it's a lot of work as you can imagine. And we'd really like to use this work to spread more about the gospel and the ways we can live out our faith and the beauty of our faith. But we'd really like some support in helping to do so. So there are two ways you can do this. One is we just started a Patreon page. I really like Patreon because it's a very modern way of implementing a very traditional practice, right? The arts in our history almost always have been funded through a series of patronage, right? The practice of patronage. So this is our way of implementing this. Patreon supporters do get a couple of additional benefits every month. They get some raw audio from interviews that just couldn't be integrated into episodes but that I really enjoyed. This month we feature a segment from David Clayton from Pontifex University. You also get a short reflection written by me and links to different works of artists. In the case of this month I have a link to a Spotify playlist which contains all of the music we've used in the first season of Mystery Through Manners. So that's one way. And another way is if you are a small business owner, maybe you are an artist yourself, and you'd like to support our show, we do have, we are starting to open up a system of advertising. And so if you're interested in that, please visit our website, mysterymannerspodcast.com. And this is the same website where there will also be a link to our Patreon page. By the way, support is just $5 a month and you receive access to everything. We don't do a tiered system with our Patreon. We want everything to be accessible to our patrons. All right, thanks so much. I'm so grateful for you listeners. It's been such an awesome journey and I can't wait to see where this podcast goes next. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey guys, Jules here. So we are about to begin part two of our series on creating or the creative process, I guess you could say. (laughs) Now last episode, which by the way, here's a good chance to listen to it, (laughs) was all about the spiritual heart of creating and why God has designed us to create right alongside him. And if you remember from last episode, we also met an incredible artist named Lawrence Pearson. She's an iconographer right here in Denver. And I wanted to begin today with a story that she told me about her time in a monastery in France. I'm going to let Lawrence take it. So it was years ago. I was Mm -hmm. still in the community of the Beatitudes at that time. And then the house where I was staying in the south part of France had another house close to it, a few few meters from from the main uh, convent. And in this second house, we would have people who would be how do you say that in english um you know at the the end of their life because Mm -hmm. of sickness so we had people who had cancer we had people with hiv Mm. and they were there like almost like a hospice right yeah 
And one of the, the residents of that, uh, of that place, a pretty young man, was there. He had been there for, I would say, maybe three weeks, a month. And he was an artist himself. He was really, really sick. And um, so we would speak and we would talk on a regular basis. And he came to my studio, and uh, which was in the convent at that time. And he looked at some different icons. And I had just finished a commissioned icon of um, St. John, who is resting on Jesus' heart. Yeah. And this icon was supposed to be shipped by mail the next day. And he just stopped in front of this icon. He was not specifically religious. Mm -hmm. He was on a quest. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a journey. And he told me, would you give me this icon just for tonight? And I said, "Um, yes, I don't mind. Just be careful because it's a commissioned icon. And I spent a lot of hours on it. So I gave him the, the icon. And the next day he came to me with the icon, which was intact, no problem. And he told me I spent the whole night praying. He didn't know if it was praying, but in front of the icon, I understand that in my illness, which is very severe, that's the attitude I need to have to be resting on Jesus' heart. I mean, that was that was so strong for him with no religious background. And he actually asked me, can you paint an icon for me? The same one, which I did. And this young man, I mean, he's older now, he's still alive. And he visited us because he's now, he's working for a travel agency. Uh He visited us last spring in good health. He still has his disease, but under control. And yeah, since then he has been on a fantastic journey. This is the story of part two, Praying with Creation. over an hour with Lawrence in her home studio a few months ago. I spoke last episode about how much I was moved by her work, the natural gaze of the people she paints, the beautiful bright colors, the meaningful symbols and postures. It was just an absolutely incredible visit. But I also left her studio wondering, now what? Now that I know so much about this, what am I to do about it? I know the meaning behind these creations now. And I felt this just immense responsibility fall over me as I realized as much as I appreciated the art, as much as I was fascinated by the kind of theological references to some of the symbols, I was still kind of terrified (laughs) to actually sit and pray with an icon. I have been to two Byzantine Catholic liturgies in my life, and one of them was the wedding of a dear friend in a Roman Rite church. But the other one was Palm Sunday over 10 years ago. And let me tell you, I was terrified. (laughs) I was so nervous I wouldn't pray correctly, right? 
that as everyone around me bowed and venerated and crossed themselves and I would just be standing there and looking totally foolish. Now, obviously, I'm sure nobody cared, right? (laughs) But I actually don't even remember so much about the movements or the gestures or the way I thought that I would. What I do remember thinking is, man, these people love their icons. (laughs) They approached the icons of this small Byzantine Catholic church with the same veneration and reverence that many Roman Catholics seem to approach the Blessed Sacrament even, right? Now, obviously, they're not the same. I know that. (laughs) And yet many Eastern Rite Catholics I know could not imagine their faith life without the guidance of the icons. If the Blessed Sacrament is the heart of the liturgy, the heart of the faith, well, for Eastern Catholics, to me, icons seem to be the soul. (laughs) They derived their existence from the heart, yet they shape and move the people in worship in ways that I had honestly never seen before. An image. I remember thinking, how can they get so much from an image? What does beauty do? What does art do? It teaches us through, by connection, firstly between image and prototype. This is David Clayton, by the way, provost of Pontifex University, who you heard from already this season. People are looking now, not at me, but at an image. But through that image, they, in their imaginations imagine me and and you're immediately getting a sense of who I am you're trying to picture where I am it's it's engaging you within sacred art whether it's iconography of the eastern tradition or the sacred realism often employed in the west what is portrayed is just an image of things which are not seen Even though paintings portray historical realities, Christ dying on the cross, for example, these things are not happening directly in front of us at this moment, right? Sacred art is beautiful, but it is still just an image. And yet the very existence of this image is instrumental in understanding deep theological truths about our faith. So this might be a good time to venture a little bit more into some church history (laughs) in a moment of time in our faith, which would shape the Catholic Church really for the rest of history. And it revolves around something known as the Iconoclast Controversy. Bear with me for a minute. We're going to attempt to sum up several centuries of church teaching in about 30 seconds. (laughs) But the gist of this controversy is this. Should we ever portray God in an image form. Is it sacrilegious or heretical to portray Christ in any form or to venerate him in any other form other than the Blessed Sacrament? This controversy, by the way, lasted for centuries and was often used as a political tool to either gain favor, raise up a rebellion, or even try to overthrow an emperor. I think today we think of our controversies, especially the last few years, to be so severe that at any moment it could break the unity of the church, right? (laughs) But guys, this one was a doozy. So at the Second Council of Nicaea, our bishops decided that sacred images should be raised up as holy and good. Why? Because Christ himself made himself known in a visual way. He was a living 
breathing human being. And as such, a truly incarnational faith would want to show honor to the physicalness of Christ by bringing to life his image. And so the council decided that images could be venerated but not adored, setting them apart from the Blessed Sacrament, but still giving them immense importance in the life of faith and in the worship of the church. And though the iconoclast controversy would every so often peek its head up again over the next century, it was for the most part drilled out of the mindset of the church. And yet, in a sense, we still live amongst iconoclasts today. Think of how many times you've heard someone, probably someone who's not Catholic or Orthodox Christian, comment about worshiping images or statues. What do we say to them? What are these things for? In our faith, an incarnational faith, where God became an actual human being, Portraying Christ helps to draw us further into a life of faith, to make the connections between all that is seen and unseen. Here's David again. Nobody can appreciate that unless they have a mindset which actually is used to thinking of things in that way. Once they have it, then everything becomes symbolic. This is what the people say about the medieval world. You go out into into the world and then... Every animal represents something else. Everything is analogous to everything else. You think in terms of analogy because you make a connection between what is seen and what is unseen. And if you don't, the mind is searching for it. of this story, I wanted to return to Lawrence, the artist you heard at the top of this episode and an artist I featured last episode as well. That's how much I like her. (laughs) I decided to do something a little different than how I usually do things here. I decided to wait to tell Lawrence's whole story because when I first visited with her and heard her story for the first time, I realized how much of her life and her art can teach us about what happens when we enter into prayer with an image. So let's briefly dive into Lawrence's background. Lawrence was born in France, studied international relations in Paris for college studies. But after two years of studying, Lawrence began to question her vocation and where God was leading her. So she decided to take what was supposed to be a brief sabbatical. Because what happened is that after two years of those uh, studies in Paris, I um, decided to take a one sabbatical year and I went to a monastery Ah. in the south of France where I stayed 13 years. even though Lawrence did end up leaving the monastery and resuming her studies, there was something that happened to Lawrence in the monastery which would shape the rest of her professional and spiritual life too. Because what happened is that a friend of one of the members of the community was coming from Lebanon where she was she was a Carmelite she's still a Carmelite but she was coming for one year in France to restore the icons of the Louvre Museum holy moly wow and she said I'm here in France for one year mm-hmm. if some of you are interested I have some time 
for teaching workshops. So for one year, I took several workshops with her. Lawrence spent over a decade with the community of the Beatitudes, perfecting her technique and entering into the study of Byzantine iconography. She has since married and had a daughter, traveled all over the world, and moved to Denver, where I was lucky (laughs) to have her in my community, but where the community is also lucky to have her as a teacher and an artist. And as I mentioned last episode, I was very intentional in my choice to speak to an iconographer. For years, I have been fascinated by iconography in the church. I think part of this is that I know there is hidden meaning behind the image I am seeing. This is the gift of image, of course. It's not simply for visual appeal. Sacred images, especially icons, and even the realism of the West is meant to actually teach me something, not just about God, but also about myself. Let's take a listen for a moment at Lawrence and I talking about one of the symbols often forgotten in iconography. The buildings. (laughs) The subjects of icons are often portrayed with buildings or structures in the background. But even these need to be painted in such a way which convey a deeper message. Here's Lawrence explaining. You never represent the interior of the building. You put the buildings in the background. Right. And what you do to to mean that what you see in the front is actually happening inside the building, you put like a red garment or red cloth. And this red cloth, which is in between uh, two buildings, means that what you see in the front is happening in the back. And I have seen icons, contemporary icons, where people, probably because they thought that was lovely, put a red cloth, a red, yeah. Just on something. <laughs> on something which, which was actually not related to what, to, to, the, to the subject. Yeah. So, th- so there is nothing which is added which doesn't have some kind of significance. Absolutely. The light, the stars, the placement of the fingers, the buildings. Everything is intentional and deliberate. Everything has meaning and purpose. Every stroke every symbol. And to me, the beauty of this tradition is that we can't take it and make it whatever we want it to be, right? Byzantine iconography is meant to have form and order. Otherwise, the symbols lose their meaning. Here's Lawrence again. Sometimes I have to say, no, I cannot, because that's not Byzantine style. For instance, years ago, I had a lady commissioning an icon where she wanted to include the cowboy hat and the, the, the Rockies. And, and I, said, I said, you know, that would be a painting, maybe a religious painting, if there is Mary, in, but certainly not an icon. And she, it was difficult for her to understand that, because icons within the Byzantine style. So actually the, the, the challenge for a, a modern artist, a modern painter of icons is to find the right balance between following the tradition but not being simply a lavish uh, copier of the traditional icons and speaking to our modern world. Icons play such an important role in the liturgy. The liturgy is the seat of our catechesis. We're not only receiving grace, but we're also receiving instruction, right? This is why after the liturgy of the word, the priest or the deacon gives a homily to help teach us about the faith through a deeper understanding of the scriptures. Probably there are a few reasons. One of them is that it's been part of their liturgical life for centuries. Mm -hmm. So for them, 
icons are really the Bible in lines and colors. Wow. And that's that's actually one of the the very strong reasons why you have icons. Many, many centuries ago, not everyone was able to read the Bible. Right. And, but they would have in their churches, they would have the Bible in lines and colors. So they would, and because they, it was part of their tradition, part of their life, they would immediately picture, oh, this, this person is St. Paul, oh, this one is St. Mary of Egypt, oh, this is the Feast of the Resurrection. They, they would know because it was part of the language. But there's something else we can learn with the practice of praying with icons. As I've often mentioned, if you've ever been to a liturgy in the Eastern tradition, the first thing people often notice is the movement of the people. The whole body seems engaged with the liturgy, bowing, signing of the cross, kissing icons, genuflecting. And this practice continues in the private prayer of these Christians. Icons are not simply limited to the liturgical experience, but rather the liturgical experience is carried into the home through the veneration of icons. You know, I think especially in our Western churches, spiritual life became more a, a thing of the mind. Yes. Unless, you know, icons... Icons are part of this very, um, how do you say that in English, kinesthetic oh, approach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, your whole body, you, pros, you, pro, you you venerate icons, you can kiss icons, you use incense. So you have all the, you have the smell, you have the, the eyes, you, you sing a lot in Western churches. Mm-hmm. When I'm not, I don't want to be dualistic, you know, right, to say right. it doesn't happen in the Western churches, but I think the whole body participates more in the Eastern liturgies when in the Western uh, churches it's it was more the mind. Yeah, here's the thing. There is something which kept coming up in my mind as I listened again to Lawrence's recording, something which might have crept in your mind too. Yeah, this sounds great and all, but this is easy for Lawrence because it's easy for anyone who's practiced or grown up in this particular tradition, right? She's trained. (laughs) She's trained in this tradition. She's had years of worshiping in Eastern churches. She knows what she's doing. But for me, I still feel awkward. Why can't I just sit? (laughs) Or perhaps am I just overthinking it? Here's Lawrence again. Looking at icons, especially in the Western world, think mm, they're a little bit austere. For instance, they don't really smile. Right. You, won't, you won't see an icon smile with a big smile. They might be. They might have a gentle um, mouth, but they don't smile. But it's because in icon painting, you don't try to represent the very naturalistic aspect. You mm-hmm. know. I'm not saying that it's unnaturalistic, but they try, the icon is trying to make you enter in a deeper mystery. They're not meant to talk first to your emotions, you know, right. bring a big joy or big sadness or what. So there is this quietness that you're drawn into. And when you're in front of an icon, the first thing is just to gaze at the icon. With an open heart, you know, like you would gaze uh, uh, at the picture of a beloved person right. in your family, or and then and then just just be, just be, and and let let this 
this openness move you towards the, the presence of the person depicted. When I knew I wanted to do an episode on praying with art, I also knew I was completely and totally unqualified to tell this story. <laughs> like I said, even as a visual person, I have found the process awkward, uncomfortable, and sometimes even a little disheartening. I knew that I would have to find guides who not only paved the way in the modern world for more visual contemplation, but I knew I also had to find people who operated within the church's own tradition who didn't try to recreate the wheel, if you will, right? But who wanted to revive the already existing patterns of prayer within the church. And I was so, so thankful <laughs> to find our last guide for this two-part series, Katie Walterness. Katie Walterness is the founder of Behold Visio Divina. We'll get a little bit more into the program in a bit, but I reached out to Katie because to me, Behold is the perfect blend of using the existing tradition to immerse ourselves in sacred art, while also understanding and appreciating modern sensibilities, temperaments, and even schedules. <laughs> so who is this guide of ours, Katie Walterness? Katie is a cradle Catholic from New Jersey who from a young age has loved her faith and has loved art. She grew up constantly drawing, creating, making. For college, she got a degree in theology from Catholic Distance University and in 2013 discerned with the Nashville Dominicans. But something happened to Katie during this time which was unexpected for her. She struggled through her prayer life. In that journey really had a hard time praying when I was discerning at that point in my life. And when I found out that God was really stirring in my heart to call me back into the world, I had a hard time finding him in prayer. And the only thing that could help me pray was actually by praying with art. After Katie left the Nashville Dominicans, she spent a few years teaching theology and she began to notice her students were in need of a deeper encounter with the Lord. So because of her own journey through praying with art, Katie decided to show them how to encounter the Lord through sacred art and images. And this, coupled with Katie attending the Given Conference for Young Women, an amazing conference, by the way, brought Katie to a decision. In January of 2017, Katie decided to officially launch a program to teach people how to pray with the ancient practice of Visio Divina. Visio Divina was the fruit of just doing a five-week program at a parish. So my action plan, the way I would contribute to the church, was to do a program teaching women about their gifts and being women of God by pondering Mary's femininity through art. So my initial action plan was to do a five-week program at this parish by me. And by week three, we all, there were about 15 of us, we all just saw that God was very much at work and that it was an encounter for each of us that we all had prayed the rosary, but 
had a very real encounter with the Lord and the Blessed Mother through praying with art together and discussing it together. Katie lives in New York City now, working for the Archdiocese, and by night, she works on Behold. And the irony is quite amazing, right? Katie has devoted her life to teaching people to settle in the silence, to rid their hearts and minds of distractions in the noisiest place on the planet. You can see a sunrise or a sunset and very much in the bustle of New York City, people are on their phones or not even paying attention to the beauty that's before them. And I think it's something that we've lost as a culture, which it's not, it's not too late to bring it back. (laughs) But I think we're so used to settling for smaller goods or smaller beauties in our life that the beautiful things that really captivate our heart, we have a hard time just sitting with them and enjoying them and taking them in. So how does Behold do this? What does the program look like? Well, first is the simple recognition that perhaps we struggle with praying with art and just art in general, because art has become something different than what it used to be. Popular art, even commercial art, used to work in tandem with the faith, right? It worked side by side with religion, not simply to inspire awe and wonder, but also to educate and even catechize. But I'm reminded of something which was said in a previous interview I did with Elizabeth Lev, an art historian in Rome who you've heard from this season. She actually has a theory about why art, and particularly praying with art, has become antithetical to our modern sensibilities. Here's Elizabeth. That there has become a kind of mistrust of the beautiful. People seem to feel that truth is in the gritty and in the brutal. So we mind it's almost like a Machiavellian mindset. Let's know the worst of everything. And that's where we find truth. We look for truth and ugliness and grittiness and brutality. And in, in, in a kind of a sense of the truth of the human condition is this miserable condition. And so art has begun to reflect that. That's what art does. Art reflects what people are are thinking. Think, for example, of the best television dramas of the last few years, right? Shows of any artistic worth or value are almost always linked side by side with vulgarity and violence, predatory behavior. You get the picture. It's no wonder that sitting with beauty, contemplating a truly beautiful piece, which is meant to draw us closer to God, would make us feel tense and a little awkward. But the beauty of Behold is that it recognizes this, and instead of chastising or rushing their participants through the process, Behold first begins by distinguishing itself and pointing out the spiritual importance of praying with art. Even though there are other forms of prayer that very much bring the reality of God becoming man to us, Visio Divina and praying with scripture and art very tangibly does it. It embraces our humanity. But if all Behold did was just plop you in front of an image, (laughs) then it wouldn't be very spiritually beneficial, would it? (laughs) Especially in a modern world where we might find the process of Visio Divina so awkward or strange. So instead, Behold doesn't simply rely on the visuals. Visio Divina only helps us enter more fully into the prayer when the whole body is engaged. In Behold groups, scripture is read aloud, and imaginative prayer, like Ignatian exercises, for example, are taught and encouraged. 
So you see, the word of God accompanies the visual, just like Christ himself, right? Christ, the word, God made flesh, a man who was made visual to other men. So Visio Divina, accompanied with the scriptures, allows participants to truly reflect and meditate on sacred images. It can really engage all the senses. I think that's one reason it can be really powerful and sort of be distinguished from other forms of prayer. And they're also beautiful. But I know for myself, Visio Divina, even though I studied about our faith and I knew about it through my theology studies, it actually became so much more to me by Visio Divina. Like I actually was experiencing, wow, what would this have been like to see Jesus? What would his voice have been like if I place myself in the scene that I'm seeing right now? So it's very tangibly embracing our humanity. Originally, groups for Visio Divina were around 40 minutes, Katie told me. But as we've already mentioned, this kind of made people feel uncomfortable. (laughs) So Katie learned to meet each participant where they were at. Sometimes she would go quicker through one step and allow for longer pauses at another, gently easing participants into longer spans of time. And of course, it all seems amazing and wonderful. It is wonderful. And frankly, I highly encourage you to visit Behold's website (laughs) for either individual books for personal prayer or for group discounts for guided meditation with friends and family. But more importantly, perhaps, I hope that you simply begin. I realized as I wrote this script how wrong I've been about thinking about praying with images. It's not the image which pushes me out of my comfort zone. It's the slowness, right? It's the quiet. It's the temptation to be distracted or get nervous. But art, as we've already said in these three episodes, pushes back at these distractions and temptations and simply asks us to sit and be. To sit and be when the pain overwhelms my soul and the horizon darkens like the night and the heart is torn in two jesus the life of me, I could not figure out how to end this episode. And isn't that how it goes? I kept thinking about the perfect words, which would be just right, right? Tie a nice neat bow on this episode. 
But the irony, of course, is that would be exactly the opposite of everything that I have learned in this two-part series. The process of praying with sacred images and the process of creating them isn't one of perfection. It's one of presence. So I'm going to leave you with Lawrence, our amazing guide and artist for these past two episodes, and her final words of wisdom as many of us begin the incredible gift of Visio Divina in our own lives. God bless you listeners, and we'll see you in a few weeks. Probably the next step would be to try to quiet your heart and just be there. It doesn't even have, you don't even have to ask to listen to something like an answer, but just try to be, yeah, to be in the presence. Mostly that. Please, please visit our website so you can get a link to the song and support Corey because I just love that song. (laughs) We'll be back in two weeks as usual for our next episode about the Catholic world and the arts. God bless you listeners and we'll see you then.